0: My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this is the podcast for Zionstone United Church of Christ. This podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. I pray that as you listen to them, they will be a blessing to you and strengthen you in your walk with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. So this morning uh, we heard a lot of scripture read, a passage from 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 through 10, and Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. And I'm going to talk about the common threads that have been running through all three of of these selections of scripture this morning. Excuse me. I will start with with King David. So, in the story that we just heard in 2 Samuel. David has just been crowned king of Judah. He had, he, well, he had already been crowned king of Judah, but and he had not yet been king of the remaining tribes of Israel. And so many of us know his story from the Old Testament. He was the shepherd boy who slew the giant Goliath. He just showed up at the camp one day with food. He heard the giant taunting the army, and nobody in the army wanted to fight him. And King Saul was like, listen, I don't care who it is. If somebody goes and beats him you can, I'll give you one. You can marry my daughter, and uh, you can have a high position in the government. And David doesn't care about that. He's like, this guy's mocking us, and he's mocking God. I'll take care of him. We know the story from Sunday school. We don't talk about <laughs> I don't know, maybe Cindy did when she taught it, but then at the end of the story, he cuts off Goliath's head and takes the sword away, and they, and they store it. Hopefully, Cindy, when you do teach that story in Sunday school, that's a you, yeah. You keep that part in there because that, that when I when I first read it, that was the best part for me. I was like, "That happened. I never learned that. That's amazing." And he wins right the the hand of King Saul's daughter in marriage, and he becomes a mighty military leader for King Saul. And we know that all of this starts way before this, when he's anointed to be king in place of Saul due to Saul's own disobedience. And even though Saul faithfully served or David, faithfully served Saul. Saul tries to kill him, even though David always served him faithfully and never tried to take power for himself. And now the day has finally come here in 2 Samuel. The fulfillment of what the prophet had anointed him to become. A lifetime of war, a lifetime of running and hiding, which he had to do, even sometimes among his own former enemies, is finally over. And he had to do that to escape from Saul. He had to go and hide among the Philistines, the exact same people he had been fighting his entire life. But all of that is over. The remaining tribes of Israel come to him and finally acknowledge his God-given gift of kingship. And if you remember the readings last week, David wept over the killing of Saul and his son Jonathan. Now this gift is given to him, and he is king over all of Israel and Judah. And this is probably one of the greatest days of his life. And then right after that, something happens. He goes down to Jerusalem and he has to take the city because it's not his yet. And he has to use military force to take it away from the Jebusites. And the Jebusites, you can go look this up on your own, but I'll tell you a little bit. They were a group of people that Israel had failed to defeat way back during the time of Joshua. And when David and his armies get to Jerusalem, they taunt him. They say, the blind people and the people with no strength, these are enough to keep you from taking the city. Basically, right? they're saying, you're such a non-threat to us. We're not worried at all. So much so... That the most physically incapable people that we have are enough to stop you. Right? So keep this all in mind. So right after David's greatest triumph, his being anointed king over all Israel, comes this immediate point of difficulty. But what does he do? Does he leave in tears? Were Were there burns so sick that he can't respond? And he's like, he's got to get his writers together and come up with his own series of sick burns. No, no. He tells his soldiers, okay, somebody go sneak in through the water pipes and take care of these blind and lame defenders. Because they're not really using blind and lame defenders. We know this, right? It's, It's used in mockery of David. So David turns it against them, right? And his men do. They sneak in the water pipe and he wins the city and he names it after himself. And under his rule, it becomes even greater and greater as a symbol of God being with David and for David. Next, we move to the reading from St. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 through 10. And we already know the insanity that the church of Corinth was up to. And uh, I've preached on that years past here, and I referenced it a little bit last week, so I won't stay too long on this particular point, as the context has been pretty well established now for for this reading. But, however, I will say that St. Paul is probably one of the hardest working of all of the apostles. He seems driven by an almost supernatural zeal and energy, and that was present in him before he even believed in Jesus, right? When he was persecuting the church, that came from this place of zeal and love for God and this zeal and love to see the Torah fulfilled. And then when he turns to Christ, that love and service to God is finally pushed into the direction it should have been all along, in service to Jesus. And one thing we know about Paul is even though he was confident in his abilities and he could even boast in them, he would constantly downplay them. He would constantly be very self-deprecating. He calls himself he calls himself at one point, I am the least of the apostles. I am one born out of time. And what's interesting here is when we read this passage from 2 Corinthians where he talks about a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. And this guy saw and heard things that he's not allowed to talk about. He says, I won't boast about this guy, but I will boast about this other guy. I will boast about me, about my weaknesses. But basically, I don't think anyone contests this, Right? that this here, St. Paul isn't talking about his friend Bill who had an experience 14 years ago. Pretty much every scholar you read of this, St. Paul is talking about himself. He is the one who had this experience of being taken up into heaven. And if you could boast in anything, if you wanted to use anything to prop up a ministry, it would be that. I remember a few years ago, um, heaven tourism books were like all the rage. Everybody, everybody, were, in, were into these books. And they were in Barnes & Noble, the Borders, and, and everywhere. Books a million. Rest in peace, Borders. That was my favorite story. It, it seemed like every day, like a little kid was uh, being taken to heaven and uh, then being used by kind of unscrupulous parents to like write these stories of going to heaven and, and, and back. And this wasn't new. I mean, you remember my own growing up, my own era I grew up in, I heard stories, too, of little kids being taken up to heaven and writing books about it and, and, and stuff like that. But all of these stories, they have one thing in common. They all tell the story of what they saw, right, down to the last detail. But St. Paul, when he says about his own being caught up to heaven, what does he say? He says, I saw and I heard things that cannot be told, which man cannot utter. He does the opposite of all the heaven's tourism books. He, he clams up. And he goes on to say that the man he's referring to, again, he's referring to himself, but he's not trying to refer to himself, will not boast in his vision, or in the experience of a vision, or what was told to him in the vision. And he does this because at the time, there were these guys running around who who St. Paul calls, I'm using air quotes here, super apostles kind of mocking them. They're running around and claiming all sort of weird mystical visions and using this to prop themselves up and to prop up their ministries, even though their ministries weren't exactly good or sanctioned by the church. Right, so imagine you sitting there having this experience that transcends space and time and the limitations of the human body and being brought directly into the divine presence of God. We can't imagine that. But try for a second, and all the feelings that 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 will come with that. You probably, to be you know crass about it, you would say that that would be an emotional high. But after this fantastic, amazing, incomprehensible experience, where the created is drawn into experience the uncreated, something happens, and he says this quote: "To keep me from pride or conceit, a thorn in the flesh was given to me." A messenger of Satan to harass me. Right? So keep that in mind, right? So after this massive high, this dark, deep valley, taken into heaven, saw stuff I can't talk about, heard things I can't talk about. Messenger of Satan tormenting me and bothering me because of my propensity to pride. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled on what his thorn in the flesh actually was. Some scholars think it was a physical illness that he suffered with. And others, uh, like St. John Chrysostom, say that it's not an illness sent by Satan, but rather the persecution that St. Paul suffered for the sake of Jesus. And we know, right, that this persecution that he suffered had physical consequences. Because remember, he was beaten, he was whipped... He was stoned and they thought he was dead and he got back up and walked back into the city. He was shipwrecked. Uh, He wasn't shipwrecked at this time, but he would go on to be shipwrecked. Well, I don't think he was. I think he mentions it here. He gets bitten by a venomous snake and he just shakes it off into the fire. He floats around in the ocean for days after his ship is wrecked. And a whole bunch of other stuff. He experiences all of that. So that can have a physical, I think, effect on his body. But those persecutions and the effect of those persecutions, and I think Chrysostom is right here. So right after this amazing experience, or not immediately after, but reflecting, he goes from having these amazing experiences to a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. And the the reading from Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. Jesus comes to his hometown of Nazareth. And his disciples follow him. And in the Sabbath, he begins to teach and preach in the synagogue. And no one believes in him. No one believes in him. And as a result, he cannot do any mighty work. And so just like David and, and Paul, we see something similar here in the life of Jesus. Now, if you were attending the virtual uh, Bible study on the Gospel of Mark. Those of you who are, who are here will say, oh, this is Mark chapter six, verses one starting in verse one. We just finished Mark chapter five and Mark chapter four. And in Mark chapter five, some really amazing stuff has happened. Jesus crossed the sea at the end of Mark four. He calmed the storm. In Mark chapter five, he drives a legion of demons out from this one guy. And then he sails back across the sea. And then when he gets across the sea, he's walking and the leader of the synagogue comes to him and says, my daughter is sick, can you come and heal her? And Jesus goes with him. And then while Jesus is walking there with him, the woman who has uncontrolled menstrual bleeding for 12 Twelve years is like if I could just touch his garment I'll be made whole and she does and she's made whole and Jesus is like who touched me and the disciples say look at these gazillion people who touched you what are you talking about and she's afraid and he says your faith has healed you go in peace and then he gets to Jairus' house and the girl has died while he was helping this woman and he sends everybody away and then he raises her from the dead and then after all of that he goes home and everybody says I used to play with him I know his mom and dad. I know his brothers and sisters, or maybe stepbrothers and sisters, whatever. I know them. I I heard him say his first word. Who who does this guy think he is? And imagine his disciples walking with him, seeing this, experiencing this, to, to run into this wall of unbelief. They must have been pretty pleased with themselves before, and now, boom, it's miracle after miracle after miracle. And in the Gospel of Mark, that's how Mark intentionally frames it. Jesus is never stopping. He's going here and healing this person. He's casting a demon out of somebody over here. He's calming the sea. He's, he's always active. And then he gets to his hometown, and boom. I don't want to get too deep into this because I actually got to teach through Mark chapter 6, starting verse 1, this Wednesday. So come and join us online if you'd like to to join us. They get to Jesus' hometown. No ticker tape parade, no key to the city, no think pieces about him in the Nazareth times. He's met with outright rejection and unbelief. So, what does Jesus do? Does he get angry? Does he say, I've had it with these people. I can't stand them. That's it. I've had enough. No. What does he do? Right? After all of these highs, highs, in Mark 5, this wall of unbelief in Mark 6, and it's meant to contrast the belief that he's seen in Mark 5 versus the unbelief he's seen in Mark 6 among his own people. What does he do? Well, he says, okay, Let's try something different. And he calls his disciples. And he says, okay. I'm going to send you guys out two by two. What I want you to do, I want to preach. I want you to cast out the demons. You're going to heal the sick. All the stuff that I've been doing, you're going to be able to do it. So you go out and you start doing the stuff that I've been doing. He's reproducing himself. He's reproducing his own ministry. Now multiplied through 12 other men. Now think about it, right? Not only does this give his ministry more reach, it also prepares the disciples for the work that they're going to do when Jesus sends them out, empowered by the Holy Spirit after Pentecost in the book of Acts. So in the face of the unbelief from his own people, who will not receive what he says, even though they can see the effects of his ministry. He increases his presence and message through his own followers being sent out on divine mission. Right, so we see in all three stories here, we see these three stories here, David and St. Paul and Jesus, people who have experienced These miraculous, marvelous, mighty victories contrasted with the difficulties of life, the difficulties of doing ministry, the difficulties of serving God. And we're meant to see in this selection this morning that the Christian life in service to Jesus is not rainbows and gumdrop mountains. That's a technical term, by the way. And this is hard for us because we are, and I say this all the time and I'm sorry, but we are shaped by our culture, by luxury and by ease. And the Christian life is not one of luxury and it is not one of ease. And the problem comes in that most Christians today, many of us have bought into the line, I'm throwing myself in there too, that the Christian life is supposed to be one of ease. So when difficulties happen, we don't know how to respond. When something happens in our life that we don't expect, we don't know how to respond. We feel like we've hit the wall. When we do something that we are bound by Scripture to not do, and we hit that wall, we don't know how to respond when we have to experience those consequences. And I think these three stories show us something. I think in the story of David, I think we can learn from his episode here that, that we can be spurred on to good works. So just as he's anointed king of Israel and Judah, and then he gets to, the, to, to Jerusalem and he gets taunted, the result of him being taunted is like, go take that city. And they do. And it spurs him on to do that. And then once he takes the city, he builds it and he grows it. And it sets the stage for Jerusalem to get better, bigger and better. And Solomon then comes along after David dies. And he builds the temple and makes Jerusalem even bigger and better. And the Lord is with him for a while. I think the story of David, that reading shows us how we can be spurred on to good works when we hit difficulties. And I think in the story from St. Paul with his own when having those miraculous, amazing, wonderful visions, and then being sent a thorn in the flesh. And he asks God, right, take this away from me. I can't handle it. And God doesn't say, you got it, buddy. Paul says, I I asked the Lord three times. And if there's anybody who you think God would answer a prayer in the way that he would want it to, it would be St. Paul. And what does God say? No. God says, my grace is sufficient for you. We don't like the no. And this happens, and I think St. Paul's situation is meant to show us that we should not be lifted up with pride. And sometimes when things that are bad happen in our lives, after we experience the highs of life, and then we experience the lows, these lows are meant to show us that maybe we might be prone to pride or pick whatever of the seven deadly sins you want. And in the life of Jesus, I think we see here in the Gospel of Mark that when he's confronted with his wall of unbelief, he responds by multiplying his ministry. He's like, okay, you don't believe me? This is what I'm going to do. You see these 12 guys over here? I'm going to give them my power and my authority, and I'm going to send them out in my name, and they're going to do all of this stuff in an even greater way than just me. And this is what Jesus means in the Gospel of John when he says, you will do greater works than these. He's talking about the sending out of the believer, of, of the apostles and their mission. And so with all the three of these examples, Christ can be formed in us. Christ's strength can be formed in our weakness. And Jesus Christ himself sets this pattern, right? His whole life in the Gospels. So you have his incarnation, and then you have his entrance into the world as he takes on human nature, right? And we know the Christmas stories. The angels show up and they sing to the shepherds, and the sky is filled, and they're rejoicing, and they're singing, and they're praising him, and they're praising God. And the shepherds freak out. People are having visions. The wise men are there. And the angels are like, hey, don't go to Herod if you want to kill him. So that they go somewhere else. And then the angels say to Joseph, hey, Joseph, go to Egypt and hide out there for a while. And Joseph's like, yeah, okay. All of this stuff is happening. And then the rest of his life, the miracles, the escapes, true love, oh, not true love, but you know what I mean. All of that. And then... The crucifixion, (laughs) the crucifixion. This incredible ministry, healings, deliverance, death, followed by the resurrection, the resurrection and the ascension. This is the pattern of Jesus, the pattern of Jesus. It's because when we are weak, when we are brought low, we learn that our true strength comes from God, that Christ is our strength, and that we can be spurred onto good works and greater works. So we will not be lifted up with pride or prone to any other sin in our life. And so we can accomplish the mission that Jesus has given us in new ways to spread the good news. And we ask ourselves, well, what is the good news the gospel? Is that Jesus is Lord. To close, I'll just quote, I'll use a quote from St. Augustine who puts this all a lot better than I could. Maybe I should have just read this quote at the beginning and then just sat down at the end of the service. He says this. Who can love us more than God does? Yet he continually teaches us sweetly as well as frightens us for our good. Often adding the most stinging medicine of trouble to the gentle remedies with which he comforts us. He tries the patriarchs. You know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Even good and devout ones. He chastises a stubborn people. He does not take away from the apostle the sting of the flesh, though asked three times so as to perfect strength and weakness. And so to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, whose strength in us is perfected in our weakness, be all glory together with his Father, who is from everlasting and is all holy, good, and life-creating spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. If you have a few minutes, I'd like to ask you to go to GoFundMe.com slash Fund. Our bell tower is in need of some major renovation and repairs, and we can use whatever help you're able to give to us. If you'd like to find out more about us, check us out on our Facebook page, UCC, or on our website, ZionstoneUCC.com. Thanks again for listening. I pray that these sermons will continue to strengthen you in your walk with Jesus Christ. And may the blessings of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you. Thank you.